Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with award-winning jazz radio host, producer, and writer, Mark Ruffin. We had the honor of speaking at length with him about writing and jazz in early January 2021. Namely, he opened up about his latest 2020 book, Bebop Fairy Tales, a historical fiction trilogy of jazz, intolerance, and baseball. It's a book full of tales and true-to-life stories immersed in the jazz ethic dressed in the peculiar garments of racial nuances in America and reflections on that most uniquely American pastime of baseball. It's really come out during a very unique time in American history. Mark is originally from Chicago, and music has always been a comfort for him, and it's been his world, and he's treated it well. His talents have been all over the mediums of TV, radio, and beyond. His stories and insights are deep and very needed in this world of ours. Enjoy. Hey, it's an honor to speak with you. I've been a big fan. I love the book. I love what you do. You're a, you're a ray of light, and not only in the world, but in the world of jazz. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, man. The one thing that I find interesting with this book, and there's so many aspects of this that I want to talk about, but I always find the backstory interesting. And I did read and hear at one point that this was a long, long process for you. So first and foremost, Talk to me a little bit about the backstory and how long this took to actually get to fruition where you saw a printed copy in your hand. Joe, man, first, thank you for having me. You know, the process, <laughs> that's a two-part question and a very long answer. From the time I got the idea until I had a book in my hand was 17 years, okay? Wow. And by the, by the idea, I mean the idea to make a book of short stories. The stories themselves are an offshoot of when I fell in love with screenwriting, which was maybe 15 years before that. So really, it's like a 30-year process since I fell in love with screenwriting. And, and that story goes, you know, I've, I've been so fortunate, man. So many people hear me on radio and, and tell me how, you know, I, I seem to have this encyclopedic mind, but it's from osmosis, from the time I was a kid. Uh, my folks had a record store. Music has always protected me. I mean, it's, I can give you so many examples of that statement. Music has always protected me. And so growing up and following into radio and music, is, it was just an offshoot, an extension of my whole life, man, really. So I always say with the book, I didn't really learn what I wanted to do in life until I fell in love with screenwriting. because. I mean, I've been so blessed, and, and music is just a natural extension. It truly is, and I'm so blessed to have it, and I'm so blessed to, I think, you know, people think they have a purpose in life. It took me a long time to figure it out, but I think my purpose here is to disseminate American culture or music, you know. Okay, so that, that aside, when I fell in love with screenwriting, I fell really hard. I taught myself there's these great self-help books. Sid Fields is the self-help guy. I wrote uh, four screenplays in seven years. I managed to get one to Spike Lee through my contacts with Terrence Blanchard. And my problem once I fell in love with screenwriting was I love history. I love all kinds of history. I love baseball history. My kid, who is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, uh, he graduated from Air Force Academy as an aeronautical engineer, but his minor was American war history. He got that from me. 
when I was a, when he was a kid, man, I was studying World War II. I know American war history. I know baseball history. I know music uh, music history. So when I fell in love with screenwriting, it was nothing but history. Spike's people were the first to tell me movie studios or movie people, black companies and independent companies can't do period pieces. They cost money. And I beat my head up against that um, three times, three, I thought, great scripts. My first script was Fats Waller being kidnapped by Al Capone. It was called Cash for Your Trash. The third script, I was also in a great group, and by the third script, they told me to write something about myself. I did. I really didn't like it, but through a fluke, I sent it to Sundance, the Sundance Screenwriting Competition. And in 2003, I was a semifinalist, which sounds like a really big deal, but it just means I made the first cut. You know, I went from, they went from 5,000 scripts to 50 and I was in that 50, but I didn't make the next five. But uh, my friend, who is an actor, Malcolm Jamal Warner, says I had a Robert Redford seeing agent free card. He invited me out to L.A., and again, that kind of turned me off. But there was a guy, 2003, 17 years ago, now going on 18 years, said, you know, Brokeback Mountain, which was the hot movie at the time, is, uh, came from a book of short stories. And that's when the light went off. 17 years ago. I, again, I wrote four screenplays in seven years, but it took me 17 years to write this book. Wow. And, you know, the one thing that I find fascinating about this book is that I've, over this pandemic, personally, I've interviewed hundreds of jazz musicians. I really tried to make a decision when this happened, like, what would be the best thing to do? And I think keeping the torch of jazz alive is one of the most important things. And what I discovered and what I've been surprised, I think, by a lot of people, there's people that aren't, is how much has transpired in this country and how many things we thought were settled, but how many things have not been settled and how your book addresses so many of those issues, like race and the culture war and all of these things that we have, all of these hangups about in this country. And your book, you know, I think a lot of musicians say it's a weird time because it's during a pandemic. But I find your book comes out during a very opportune time with these conversations, these notions, these, these things need to be examined and healed. You, you know, Joe, gosh, man, you put that so well, man, especially the first part of what you said. I mean, everything that's happened over the last, you know, whatever that was, those last 365 days we had, <laughs> whatever that was, it laid bare a lot of problems in this country. Not just race, but health care. All kinds of problems have been laid bare, right? For me, I was just writing a book about how I felt. In doing interviews, it's so funny, man. In doing interviews, I found out more about myself, why I wrote this book. You know, I was just writing, getting my feelings out. I want the world to get along. The fact that I got it done in this time when we're having this reckoning on race and class and gender issues, it's just, it's just profound luck. I don't, you know, they say luck is part, you know, being prepared. I, I was ready. You know, I, I had this thing I wanted to say. It got out, and I'm just blessed to be part of the conversation. And also to that extent, again, I learned about myself. In the, the foreword of the book written by Terry Lynn Carrington, she says, and it was the first time I, I thought of this, that my book helps you to check your own internalized biases while you're having a bit of fun. I was just writing, man. <laughs> yeah, man. And, 
what a great quote, and I and I read that as well. And you know, the one thing that I realized too about talking to musicians, I always would ask every once in a while, and I would cherry pick who I would talk to about it, and a lot of it was educators, and I would say, How healthy is jazz in America in say two thousand fifteen or seventeen? I never have to do that after twenty twenty. The amount of gigs that have been canceled by musicians is staggering. Like when I when I was talking to Joe Lovano early on and he was in his cabin up in upper uh, New York, uh, upstate New York. I mean, when he when he was telling me what he lost, and then just a local drummer in Kansas City at a, a distance gig, I was just blown away. And dude, in January, I was with speaking of Kansas City, I was with the um, the chairman of the Charlie Parker Museum, we in, in New York City discussing 2020 what we were going to do. I wrote yeah. the liner notes to Bobby Watson's album Kansas City Finest. Man, Bobby wow. has so much planned for Charlie Parker's wow. centennial. And I frequently said, you know, as we celebrated Charlie Parker, man, Kansas City was just so ready to shine this year. Just so wow. ready to shine. You know, I mean, we're kind of off the path, but 2020 took some things from us, man. And especially for me, I was so excited for your folks. I was so excited. Man, you just gave me goosebumps. I, yeah, I, I, when I, I talked to Bobby right before the world shut down in, in March, and he was telling me what his itinerary was, and I was like, Ooh. good for you. Because Bobby is the reason that people have made Kansas City a destination, not a springboard to New York or another larger market. He made this place relevant. He was the cat that said, I'm coming in. I'm going to give you guys the skills. And these younger guys took that baton. And Kansas City was soaring. You're totally right. And but but this has been a national thing that's really you know kind of swept through. But I think my one of my points is the silver lining of this is that maybe there's a part of this that's going to make jazz relevant. I mean, in your book, you tied together two of the most magnanimous things America ever made: jazz and baseball. And you married those notions together and made it romantic. And I hope that people say, yeah, when, when we go back to our lives and we get to aggro live jazz, maybe people say jazz is the way again. You know, man, now you just gave me uh, chills because we were talking about what Kansas City lost in 2020 and, and, and the jazz and the Charlie Parker Centennial. And then you tied it with my book and then you said, you know, baseball and, 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 and the intersection of baseball and jazz. What city, not, not very many cities represented more than Kansas City. That, that gave me chills thinking about that because the Negro Leagues, of course, the museum is there. And, and my book, Bebop Fairy Tales, an historical fiction trilogy on jazz, intolerance, and baseball. Now, I have three stories in here, but had I concentrated on Kansas City, I could have came up with even more. I mean, man, where's the movie on Tom Pendergast? And, and, and Count Basie yeah. in that time. Where's the movie on that? Okay. Amen. So I'm a screenwriter, and so when, when I fell in love with screenwriting, when I got these ideas, all these jazz stories just invaded my head, including, and I'm sure thought about Kansas City. I mean, I would love to do something on um, the famous director who did the movie. Robert Altman and Charlie yeah. Parker knew each other as kids? Come Where's the film on that, man? Yeah, and, and, it, and man, when you do that, one of the sharpest minds I've ever been around on this planet, and, and he blows me away all the time, is the great Chuck Haddock here in Kansas City. Yes, um, yes. You know, I, I remember one time we did an interview a few uh, years ago. We were at the Mutual Musicians Foundation. We were sitting 
and, and I, I was thinking, I'm a huge fan of him. I'm like, is he even going to remember me? And he comes up, shakes my hand, Joe, how you been? What's going on? And we start talking, and he starts telling me a story, like with, within seconds of Charlie Parker eating a chicken bone on the street corner up the street from me. And I was just like, wow, like his memory and his cognizance of history in Kansas City and Bird and, and all of that is like, I, when he said that, it's like his mouth was a movie projector. It was like he was showing me these silhouettes of these cats walking around. I'm like, wow, it was amazing. And that's the thing, when I'm down there near 18 and Vine, I feel those ghosts bumping into each other. I feel the history, this kindred notion of, you know what, man, this was, this was love down here. This came from our soul. We felt this joint, and I'm glad that it's still going, you know? Well, again, that's the kind of thing that excites my imagination. I, I've been blessed in such a world of growing up in, and this is my 40th year playing jazz on the radio. How, how more blessed can I be, right? And then to have baseball and, and music in, in different areas, to fall in love with fiction. The stories in my book could have easily been Kansas City. The, the, one of my stories in the book, Bebop Fairy Tales, The Sidewinder, uh, I think any fan of baseball would love that book, although you don't have to be a fan of jazz or baseball to get the message of uh, how intolerance is stupid in my book. But I think Kansas City folks, the Sidewinder is a giant love letter to Philadelphia culture about Philadelphia baseball, about Philadelphia R&B and Philadelphia jazz. I could have easily done the same kind of story to Kansas City. There's, there's a million jazz stories out there, and Kansas City has got quite a few of them. Yeah, in Chicago, i got to tell you, I, I, I don't know that I've ever felt as good as I ever, ever have in Chicago. I've been there on numbers of occasions, seen so many great jazz cats, and every time I connect with somebody, you know, the lore of Von Freeman to just all the cats that came through Ooh. there. What a, Man, so you came from the cradle. Yes, you know, as people say, a lot of folks say, man, how come you don't have a story about Chicago in my book? Okay, two answers to that. The first story is called A Saturday Night Fish Fry, and it is a Chicago story, actually. It's uh -huh. a story about, it's, it's a, uh, all the facts are real, but I made up the story. Uh, uh, Bob Fosse, uh, the famous dancer, is from Chicago. He was a Chicago child star. He was in the Navy. Now, Pap, the famous director, was his station chief in the Navy. That's how they met. And so I put all that together, one white guy from the north side of Chicago. Then I have the great Gene Ammons, the south side uh, sax player. And, again, the facts in the story are true. His father was one of the first great big jazz stars ever. His, uh, he was in the Billy Eckstein band. And it's, the story is about how these two guys from Chicago get in this, these two very wild parties in New Orleans, uh, the story being Gene Ammons had a fight with Billy Eckstein, the Billy Eckstein, the first bebop band, and he got, he got left in New Orleans and ended up meeting Bob Fosse. So it is, you know, there's a lot of Chicago in my story. I talk about, I talk about in that story about how Bob Fosse uh, once danced with a black woman at the Green Mill back in the day. And the Green Mill, famous jazz club in Chicago, over 100 years old. It was back then. And, and I pulled that fact from a book and from a talk with his ex-wife, Gwen Verdon, so it is a Chicago story, you know, in a way. And the second part of that thing, I had six bebop fairy tales. I had one Joe you would have loved. It was about the twenty. It was a science fiction story about the twenty-third century 
a long-lost relative of Von Freeman on Mars rediscovers him and finds a cousin on the moon, on the moon, which is a satellite of Earth. It was a wild story. But that's I, beautiful. I, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's like Bradbury meets jazz meets yes. American folklore. Yes. That's yes. wondrous. Yeah. Totally. You, know, <laughs> you know, it's really funny. You, you say Bradbury, he inspired it. I worked for the yeah. Steppenwolf Theater for a, a season when they had this incredible series, like they had Kurt Elling with his wife do dance, and they had Gwen Burden, Bob Fosse's wife, who inspired this story. And one of them, one of these traffic things was Ray Bradbury doing something, and he kind of inspired the Von Freeman story, too. So. <laughs> I love it, man. You know, it's funny. When I was reading this book, I interviewed Maxine Gordon because she was in Kansas City on March 12th, okay? And this is, this is profound, man. I, she signed my book on March 12th. I was at the Johnson County Community College before the wow. world shut down. And I wasn't going to go, but Deborah Brown asked me, said, I really want to cover this event, and I love Deborah, and I love Maxine. I love the book. I just read it. So I'm there, and I get a sign. I remember walking out of that place, and I was like, how am I going to remember this? And I looked down, saw March 12th, and I contacted her recently, and I said, I will never get an autograph that will be more profound than this. You know, it's funny you mentioned two women there. I love men. Deborah Brown, another Kansas City oh, jewel, okay? Another yeah. Kansas City jewel. Um, and Maxine, Maxine, who uh, was one of the first people to read my book, and she went crazy, man. She, <laughs> she, yeah. she loved it. I, I love Max. I love Max. Uh, she. You know, the one thing that she told me after all of the hundreds of interviews that I talked to people about, you know, Joe Lovano put the first idea in my head about the birth of a new idiom. You know, we're going through these racial and class unrest. We're coming out of what we're going to be called a viral war. And there's all of these things that are raw, and it could bring about a new idiom like bebop and just, you know, things coming from the soul of these musicians that aren't commercial but coming from deep down. And I asked Maxine about it, and she said, you know what? Maybe we don't need to be looking forward. Maybe we need to go back to, to, to Armstrong and New Orleans and the early practitioners. Maybe we need to study that a little bit more. And she was the first person out of all of those months of talking to people that said something that just resounded and resonated so well. And it makes sense. What do you think of that? You know, man, there's a guy from Chicago, NEA Jazz Master, Joe Siegel. One of his trademark phrases was, Bebop, the music of the future. That was one of his trademarks, and that's kind of – I know Maxine thinks that way too, but, Joe, let me ask you, during this time of COVID, young musicians and, and people like T Terry Lynn Carrington, the social science record, they're incorporating so much spoken word and so much hip-hop and so much yeah. different things into jazz. I mean, do you think, like Mr. Lovano was saying, there's a new idiom afloat? that could come out of this? There's a lot of positive things coming out of this. Could that be one of them? Amen. Yeah, I think there's silver lining. I think people are going to approach it in a different way. And I think a part of that is, is it's forced a lot of musicians to become producers and to do things they never did before. And when you come from that perspective, there's, there's levels of this that can be woven in. But I think it's, it goes to your book and to what you did for addressing a very deep issue in this country. We have, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that I, I, Mr. Christopher Burnett, wonderful musician here out of Kansas City, was telling me, he said, you know, for some reason, a lot of people in this country thought eight years of, of a president like Obama would have cured things, but it only made these people dig deeper into their burrow until they got someone to say, let's go. 
And that's the thing that hurts me because I hate to see that Rose is getting sent any farther back in the bus than she ever had to be before because she was the first one that said no. And I really thought that no was the biggest yes. And, and I'm seeing things now and what you've addressed in your book and, and what we need to address is a, a world, you know. Okay, you know what, man? You said another important name, and, um, and, and there's so many twists that I endured writing this book. So I, I was so excited to send one to Joe Lovano. I was so excited because, Joe, if, if you notice, if you look on the book, there's a football player on the cover of my book, and that football player is wearing a Cleveland Browns uniform, okay? And I would never tell anybody why. You really have to read the book to see why and, and who the football player is. But he's from the 1964 uh, Cleveland Browns team. And the 1964 Cleveland Browns team was very instrumental in civil rights in many ways, mostly uh, through the efforts of Jim Brown. There's a movie coming out called One Night in Miami about Sam Cooke meeting Jim Brown, uh, Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali. And in my, in my book, I talk about that meeting. That was Jim Brown. I, I mean, I can't say enough about what he did in 64 with the Cleveland Browns, and they are an integral part of my book, and I would never – I mean, the way the story happened and how the Browns got involved. No, no, I will tell you, tell you that, how I got the Cleveland Browns involved. The, the guy on the cover of, of, of the uh, book is Walter Beach. He was uh, – he was a defensive end for the 64 Cleveland Browns and happens to be a really good friend of mine. And he was a close friend of Jim Brown's. And so I'm doing research on this book. I'm telling my story. The Sidewinder is about a Jewish kid from one side of Philadelphia and a black kid from another side of Philadelphia. And it's about how the year 1964, and so many things happened in 64. Dr. King got the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, uh, Nelson Mandela went to jail. Muhammad Ali changed his name. In a 15-month period between the end of 63 and beginning of 65, Malcolm X, John Kennedy, Sam Cooke, all were shot and murdered. And all this is in part of this story in this, in this book I had. But anyway, so, uh, but the main the main emphasis of the story is the 1964 Philadelphia Phillies, which baseball fans will know have one of the greatest collapses in history. So these kids loved that team. So there was a game, uh, September 21st, 1964. The Phillies were just about to fall out of first place, and the Philadelphia Eagles were on the other side of town playing the, uh, the 1964 Cleveland Browns, right? And many people at the at the game in the football game had their radios on listening to the baseball game because the Phillies were about to collapse out of first. And there was this huge baseball rally, and the crowd cheered loud at the football game, and no one knew what was going on. Then I realized, whoa, that's my friend, Walter Beach and Jim Brown. Whoa, let me see how I can integrate. It was one of Walter Beach's best games in his NFL career. The coincidence just, just freaked me out, man. So. I, went, I changed my story. It became this long, some people call it the epic of the book, and became this long, long story with lots of st different through lines to get you to the point, you know, but uh, you, you got you to read it to dig it. You have to dig it to dig it. Totally you do. So, you know, with that in mind, what do you see the revival as? As we kind of come out of 
this year and all of the things that are closing and all of the good and bad? What, what, what do you see the revival being here this year? Is, is it this year? That, that's one thing. Is that's the question. Year? You're right. Okay. Yeah. When is it? But, but if, if, I, if, I, if I had money, a lot of money, one of the first stocks I would buy are airline stocks because I think they're going to just fly. <laughs> and, and if I was an entrepreneur, I would open up me an art center somewhere because people are going to be hungry for it. I, I don't know what the change in theater and music and film is going to be. we got a lot of stories to tell politically, uh, health-wise, race. We have a lot of stories to tell, which, which should bring out a lot of music and art, you know. What is going to be, Joe? I don't know. I, I hope it's a nice ride. I just think it's going to be a lot of it. I, I, I really think it's going to be a lot of it. I, don't, I can tell you the direction. And then the other question is, but when? Is that the, is that the spring or summer of 22? Is that the fall of 2021? We don't know. Yeah. In the meantime, my book can get some folks through, through it <laughs> through it a little bit. And, yeah. It, it, it did for me, and I think there's been a lot of books that I've kind of looked at that have kind of happened and transpired that have been very pivotal and very good for, for the psyche and to keep jazz alive. But I guess that's a part of my idea here, too, is, is that do you think there's going to be a revival of jazz? Do you think there's going to be a level of people that are going to thirst for it in a very more profound, different way when we come back? I think there'll be more young people. I think there will be more young people. And I think, you know, jazz is a spirit. Jazz takes whatever it is. It's a living organism. There you go. It's a living organism. And no matter where it is in the world, it recreates within that time and space, the period it's in, and it throws its, the art back at the people and come up with something different. And, and I mean, that may be confusing, but look at South African jazz. South African jazz is totally different from the jazz made in Scandinavia, you know, which is totally different than the jazz kind of made in New Orleans. I think jazz is an organism and that right now young people are taking, um, are discovering it and taking the elements of things they grew up with and, and it's going to be different. I, and I think this lockdown is just going to make it larger. That's my hope. That's my hope as well. So let me ask you this, just kind of to, to kind of go back in time a little bit. I, you know, you have to be waking up every day having all of these wonderful ideas. Talk to me about, like, your first radio gig. What was that like? like how, how exciting was that for you to get your first radio <laughs> gig? And... <laughs> uh, you mean paid radio gig or the first time ever on radio? Hey, man, I'm going to be raw with you now. I, 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 I'm doing this without much. So just the first gig, the first excitement. <laughs> okay. You know, man, even how I fell in the radio uh, was different. I was a musician, man. I was in high school band camp with one of the greatest Kansas City heroes, Pat Metheny. He was in college. I was in high school. We were at the Illinois State Band Camp. I went to band camp with a lot of uh, famous folks and was recruited by a lot of colleges as a bass player. Okay, and I went to Southern Illinois. I was recruited by a guy at Southern Illinois University who convinced me to come there, a teacher by the name of London Branch, who fought with the school over jazz and classical. He got fired, and the classical guy came in, and he didn't like me at all. And I, I, I was thinking about transferring when I found out that Southern Illinois was a huge broadcasting school. It's like Missouri. University of Missouri is one of the strongest journalism schools. Southern Illinois is one of the 
strongest uh, broadcasting schools. I was really fortunate to be there. I changed my major after seeing Stanley Clark and Return to Forever. It was the Where Have I Known You Before tour. He was playing the song Vulcan Worlds. I'll never forget it. He did a run, and this bubble went off in my head. Man, I'll never get that. And I changed my major to, to radio and TV. And again, again, luck, man, music is protecting me. I, 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 was, I took the classes. I went to the big public station. The, the commercial station at the school was a click, and the black folks at the station only got the weekends, and that was a click to get into. But the big public station at the school, the NPR station, took volunteers to help or do different things. And I walked in, man, and there was a bit of racism involved, and this guy said, you, you can't work here. You need a third-class license. I didn't know what that was. He gave me the book. I grew up r- roughing records and TV. My dad was a full-time electrician at a steel mill, and he fixed radio and TVs on the side and bought people into the stores by selling records. Where that meant I heard records all day. I heard radio, record people. Smokey Robinson is the first person I think in my book because he taught me. He, I fell in love with the English language because of Smokey Robinson. My dad, as we grew up, people grew up, as we grew up, we would be the uh, people who would troubleshoot the radios and TVs. He taught us all how to do it, how to check the tubes, do the voltage, all that. Uh, so when he got home, he would kind of know what was wrong with the TVs and, or radios. And when I got this book from this guy, man, I opened it up, and it was all the things my dad had taught me. I was like, wow. And, and that guy was so surprised when after going to the FCC, a month later I came back, well, here's my license. What can I do? And came to a TA, and the TA was a really nice guy. He knew my interests. And one weekend, the jazz guy didn't show up, and or, or the jazz guy needed to. And they asked me, did I want to? And I was scared to death, man, but, yeah, I wanted to. I was scared to death. And it was just one shift, and they told me that. But the reverberation with the click, the R&B click, they heard me, you were on the radio. You don't need to be over there. It was like, again, being prepared when luck fell in, and they felt, a kinship that I needed to be with. Now, when I got my own show, I remember the first song I played. It was by uh, saxman Azar Lawrence. It was on Fantasy Records. The uh, song was called Gratitude. It was a cover of an Earth, Wind, and Fire song. I Because I felt so much gratitude that I lucked up like that. And, yeah. um, and that moment, I'll just never forget that moment, my own show. Wow. I, I yeah. feel it now. And I never forgot the first <laughs> song I played. And I'm still thrilled 40 years later. I'm still thrilled when I go on the radio. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Is that thrill like always still pulsing through you when that on-air sign goes on? Oh, oh man. Actually, Joe, I can't wait till I'm not a program director anymore and I could just go in and do the show, you know. <laughs> it did. Yeah. And, and, and I tell you, you know, people, man, people don't know in the, of what I've going through with a corporation and how corporation work for a corporation is totally different from public radio. And now with, with Alexa, I can, I can, you know, you could say Alexa play whatever radio station it is. And I've been going around listening to public radio stations, man, and I'm so jealous of the freedom you guys get. And, you know, and I know about the insecurity of that situation too, you know, it's a give and take, but it's still a thrill. Well, I guess the thing about what you're really talking about is freedom. And every time I ask a jazz musician, why do you love jazz? That's the number one answer. And I think that's the 
being a practitioner and a lover of this craft is you have to really love the freedom. And that's what you hear with a lot of these programs. Because I do the same thing. I'm going to WBGO, KCSM. I'm getting on yep. there and I'm just listening to how they undulate and how they kind of go. Like, for instance, my first song for 2021, because my last song was emotional. It took me a long time to get through it. I was, I was, I was in tears half the time because I basically did an audio journey of this year and it was rather magnanimous with just the voices and it was good. It was good tears, but it was looking back on this tumultuous time that took a lot out of the human race. It was a very, very toll driven thing. So my first song this week is going to be Bill Evans piece piece. I'm going into it and I just want, I want to undulate that piece. Yeah. You could follow that with peace by Horace Silva. Totally. In fact, I will, I will totally do that because I think we need to start out this, uh, this journey with something that's sane and uh, beautiful <laughs> because we've all gone through the surreal insanity of this last year. I guess one other question I have for you, and I know you're probably, you're probably on a timetable here, but I just want to know from you, and I ask this a lot, what is it about jazz that you love? What, if, you, if you really just dig down and you, you ask yourself, why do I love this thing that brings me so much joy? What would your answer be? You mean besides the one you just gave, Friedel? You mean besides Friedel? Maybe. You know what, man? My, my wife just said to me the other day, she loves watching me listen to certain people solo. Man, I, Dexter Gordon, speaking of Maxine, Dexter, the way he would quote a song, whether it's a Disney song or... Uh, a shave and a haircut. I mean, there's no telling what Dexter or, or Monty Alexander, man, there's so much humor and joy Monty Alexander's playing, you know? Or you, you, you talk about Peace Peace, Bill Evans. Oh, come on. I mean, it's such, you, Joe, you don't have to say anything when you play Peace Peace to open it up. You give, you give your opening line and Bill Evans says the rest. It's, it's the joy, it's the message. Another great example I have that of I happen to have had the incredible pleasure of seeing the Pat Metheny trio a couple of weeks after the guy who's leaving the office was elected. It was like a couple of weeks after the, the inauguration. And if you, at the time, Pat had this trio out, but they were all playing his hits from the group. I, and if anybody missed that tour, that's amazing. If you're a Pat Metheny group fan and to see him break it down with a trio, God, that was amazing. Him, Linda May, oh, and um, Antonio Sanchez. But at the end, there was this great big standing ovation. And Pat walked out and he said, this is for what just happened the last couple of weeks. And he sat down and he played a solo version of This Is Not America. And the long way to answer your question, he didn't have to say another word. Peace, peace. Bill Evans, you didn't have to say another word. The way Monty yeah. Alexander makes me laugh when he does does either something from the islands or quote or Dexter Gordon quoting Bugs Bunny, you know, or or, or a, a Disney film. It's the communication, you know, that, that can be conveyed and the joy in it. And and one more great example. I have a friend, Judy Roberts, who plays piano, wonderful piano and a singer. And and she likes to put her head down when she solos and, you know, she doesn't look up. And she she rocked, and she was rocking, and she looked up, and she saw me, and she instantly hand said, "Don't be afraid, just call me." Put her head down and and start. You know, it's the messages that can be conveyed with jazz and communication. Yeah. There's a lot of joy in that with that freedom. So that's my. There answer. absolutely is. 
I love it, man. You know, I, I moved to Lee Summit in January before all of this started. Wow. And every, yeah, and every time I talk to somebody, they have great Pat Metheny stories. And Chris Brubeck had a great story about doing Jesus Christ Superstar. And, and, and they hired a young uh, bass player. and he, I think he was playing guitar at the time. And he told me this whole story. So the amount of stories and lineage I'm getting from being in the hometown of Pat Metheny wow. has been astonishing wow. to me. <laughs> Dude, I- Dude, I am an original pet head because, like I said, I was in high school band camp in 1973 or 72. He, one of those years, he wasn't even signed. I saw him, he, Gary Burton, it was Bobby Moses, Gary Burton, uh, Mick Goodrick, and Pat. And it was, it was just so amazing watching this young kid every night. And then one of the ways I got my, one of my first radio jobs at WDCB the, the program director was the second pet head I ever knew. And the fact that I was so familiar with him, he was like, you know, music, we speak to each other. You know, and Lee Summit, they, is, is there a museum there yet? Not yet. No, they got a sign right there by the Amtrak, and they, they will. It'll happen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, wonderful talking to you, man. And, and I, I, I wish so much love for Kansas City. I really, really do. Thank you. And I, I wish the same for you and... And for this year, and as we go on, I'm a big fan. Thank you. It's been a joy, man. Thank you. Bebop Fairy Tales and Historical Fiction Trilogy on Jazz and Tolerance and Baseball. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest writers and broadcasters and players in Chicago, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Mark for being a beacon in the jazz world and for all of that creativity that we dig the most. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.